0: What is your picture of Jesus? What's your image of Jesus? Hold that thought while we read our text this morning from Numbers 24, verses 1 through 19. I invite you to turn there as we'll be there quite a bit this morning. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, But he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his oracle and he said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river. Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He will pour water from his buckets. His seed will be in many waters. His king will be higher than Agag, and his kingdom will be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has the strength like a wild ox. He will devour his enemy, the nations, his enemies. He will break their bones. He will pierce them with his arrows. He bows down He lies down like a lion. As a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Blessed is the one blessing you, and cursed is the one cursing you. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and he said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you've bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. So Balaam said to Balak, did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. And now, indeed, I am going to my people, and come, I will tell you what this people will do to your people in the last days. So he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of the Lord and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise from Israel. He will crush through the forehead of Moab. He will tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be a possession. Sayer also, his enemies will be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one will rule, and he will destroy the survivors from the city. So let me return to my question that we began with. What is your picture of Jesus? Why don't you do this? Shut your eyes just for a moment. Shut your eyes. Now, be careful not to break the first of the Ten Commandments, but uh, shut your eyes, and I want you to give me the image that you see of Jesus. All right, you may open them. So, what would your image be? Or what was your image? Would it be the picture of Jesus that, uh, I'm sure for many of us, the picture of Jesus that was on our church walls, right, where Jesus... Has kind of yellow skin, right? He's got yellow skin, and he's got really long, straight hair. Looks very feminine, right? No, no offense, ladies, but looks very feminine and kind of meek, expressionless. That was that was the picture of Jesus on my church wall. Looked a little sickly. Was it that? Was that your picture of Jesus, or or maybe your picture of Jesus was the other Jesus uh, picture of Jesus that was popular, where? It was kind of a cross between uh, Lands End and Abercrombie and Fitch. Jesus had real kind of must up hair, you know, very masculine, you know, strong jaw, you know, uh, and uh, cool kind of garb around him. Was that your picture of Jesus? Or maybe, given the time of year, it is. uh, It's a defenseless baby uh, who indeed was born in the manger. Well, this morning, I want us to consider a portrayal of Jesus from Numbers 24. From Numbers 24. So we've got to do four things very quickly uh, to consider this. Four things. The First of all, we have to consider the hermeneutics of this passage. Now, that's just a fancy word for interpretation, so have no fear. The second thing we have to do is we have to consider the context because Numbers 24 actually occurs in a big book, right? The, what we call the Pentateuch, another fancy word that just means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is one book, actually, in, uh, in its original language that Moses wrote. So we've got to consider the context. The third thing we have to do is consider the passage, of course. And then the fourth thing is we want to apply these truths to our own thoughts and person. So back to number one hermeneutics, again, interpretation, it might be helpful for us to consider the intention of the author as we think about this passage. All right, now, because I think at first blush, when we think about this, we know it's Balaam speaking, and so we kind of think the context is Balaam in his immediate context, and we might ask, well, what's in Balaam's mind? But remember, Balaam didn't write this, right? Remember, Moses wrote this. So Moses is using Balaam's kind of prophecy for his own purposes, right? And that's why we have to consider the whole book of Moses to understand what the author wants to do. What is his purpose in retelling this story, this poem, in Numbers 24? Is it merely to record what's going on, right? As if that's his purpose, just to tell us, oh, this happened, Or maybe God merely told this to him, and he's, again, just saying, well, this is what happened. But if that's the case, we're hardly left with any kind of criteria to understand Moses as a human author, obviously God superintending him, but what is his intention? And it flattens it out to a mere historical record, which it is historical, but it's more than historical. Again, these are kind of some fancy ideas, uh, but we need to think about this as we seek to interpret this particular poem. So we often look for the author's intention in the rest of the book, and we do this mainly kind of by recognizing his design or structure, repetition. All right, and these are things that we're all going to see this morning. So interpretation. Again, what is the intention of Moses in recording this poem that Balaam originally spoke? Now that's number one thing. The second thing is context, all right? Which again, a consideration of Moses' purposes uh, thrusts us towards. In Genesis 49, we're going to see another major character, similar to Balaam, that had just come out of a long narrative in the story. All right? This is Jacob. This is the whole Abrahamic narratives, where Jacob, uh, son of grandson of Abraham. Uh, had a lot of uh, attention there in these uh, Genesis narratives. He also, this person Jacob, is going to command an audience, just like Balaam did, where he said, you know, come, I'm going to tell you what will happen. Uh, Jacob does this exact same thing. He commands an audience. We'll see that in a moment. Moreover, he tells his listeners, this is what's going to happen to you in the last days, just like Balaam said to his audience, Balak in particular. I'm going to tell you what this people will do to your people in the last days. So Jacob, interestingly enough, uses that exact same phrase. Moreover, he speaks in a poem. Jacob speaks in a poem, just like Balaam spoke in a poem, after a long narrative, and then after the poem, we see another little short narrative. So in other words, it's the same style that Moses is using. Right? We have a major character out of the narrative, He commands an audience, he speaks in a poem, and he's talking about the last days. So let's listen to what Jacob says in Genesis 49. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read Genesis 49, 1 and 2, and then I'm going to cut to Judah in verse 8. Jacob called his sons together, and he said, Gather, come together, so that I might tell you what will happen to you, or what will happen in the last days. Verse 2, gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So here he's going. He's going to give this poem. It's going to be a blessing of the 12 sons or the 12 tribes. And again, for the sake of time, we're going to cut to Judah in 49, verse 8. Chapter 49, verse 8. He says, Judah, you are the one whom your brothers will praise. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you go up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the one giving laws from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him will be the obedience of the people. So just a couple very quick things to note here. Note the lion imagery. Very rare and unique imagery here that we just saw in Numbers 24. So we'll have to consider this. Again, this is part of that repetition that the author gives so that we might know exactly his emphasis and what he means. Notice also that we have a third masculine singular. That just means a male figure, an individual, mind you, from Judah who holds a scepter. All right. Now again, this is poetic imagery, so it's helpful to think about these things. Uh, this is a figure of speech. One who holds a scepter is what? He's a king, exactly. And this is a figure of speech that the author can use to mean king. All right. So uh, this person here holds a scepter. We also should notice that he's a lawmaker. This is one who makes laws. This is also going to come back again in another passage that the author uses here. So this person here, who is from the tribe of Judah, who's pictured as a lion, who is a king, who will come in the last days, apparently, is one who has the authority to make laws. Finally, one more thing that we should see here is that uh, the peoples will obey him. Not just one people, but many peoples. All right? To him is the obedience of the nations, This is very interesting, given what we will see again in Numbers 24. All right, so there's one passage in the context. Now we're going to turn to another passage in the context, namely Deuteronomy. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is chiding Israel for its idolatry. All right, Moses uh, has a very negative portrayal of Israel uh, at the end of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, he says this. He says, I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt. This is verse 29 of chapter 31 of Deuteronomy. You will turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will happen to you in the last days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands, namely your idolatry. So here is a third time, that we have a narrative, you have the narrative, it's really a sermonic narrative of Deuteronomy, where Moses retells the history of Israel. He's a major character, and he commands an audience, there in Deuteronomy 31-29, right before you see a poem in Deuteronomy 33, which talks about a king. So it's the third time that happens. This is something we should definitely pay attention to, because the author is trying to get our attention. Moreover, he uses this phrase, the last days. And he commands an audience. He mentions a king in verse 5. He says that Judah will help fight against his enemies uh, in, in a few verses later. And in 33, verses 20 through 20c, we see the exact same lion imagery, which surrounds a passage about God providing this best thing or this first thing for himself. All right, so just listen here for a minute, minute in, uh, again, chapter 33, verses 20 through 22 Of Gad, he said, blessed blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion. He tears the arm and the skull of the head. He causes this first one or this best thing, depending on your version you're reading, for himself. Because there, the one making laws is reserved. So there's the one making laws again. He comes with the heads of the people, he does the justice, uh, he he administered the justice of the Lord, and his judgments are with Israel. Of Dan, he says, Dan is a lion's whelp who leaps forward from Bashan. So again, we have lion imagery, Uh, we have judgment on the nations, we have a king, in the last days. Listen to what Old Testament scholar John Salhammer says about how Moses uses Numbers 24 in relationship to Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. Quote Not only do Balaam's final oracles allude to his earlier ones, but also in speaking of the future king, Balaam alludes to and even quotes the earlier poetic sections in the Pentateuch. In the oracles of Balaam, then, we find the central messianic themes of the Pentateuch restated and expanded. For example, in Numbers 24.9, Balaam says the future king about whom he gives his oracle, like a lion he crouches down, like a lioness who dares to arouse him. This entire section of Balaam's oracles is is a quotation of Jacob's prophecy of the king who will come from the tribe of Judah, unquote. One more Old Testament professor, says uh, Franz Dalisch, says this in reference to the star that we're going to see in Numbers 24 coming out of Israel. The pronouns, I see him, the him there, I behold him, that particular him, the pronouns refer to the star which is mentioned afterwards. The, quote, but not now, as having... "...not as having already appeared, and the not nigh, that is, not to appear immediately, but to come forth out of Israel in the far distant future. If there could be any doubt that the rising star represents the appearance of a glorious ruler or king, it would be entirely removed by the parallel, quote, a a scepter will arise out of Israel." I'm still quoting here. The scepter, which was introduced as a symbol of dominion in Jacob's blessing, Genesis 49, is employed here as the figurative representation and symbol of the future ruler in Israel. Now, that's the context. All right, now, in case you missed it, uh, the reason why the context is so important is because, of course, Matthew quotes this verse in Matthew 2. God brings him out of Egypt. For Matthew, listen now. For Matthew, this is proof that Jesus was the prophesied one from Numbers 24. But what are people saying about this? People are saying that no no no, what Matthew Matthew's quoting that, but what really was what really Moses meant when he said God brings him out of Egypt Moses really meant God brings them out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt, as in Israel. So Moses meant God just bringing Israel, the people, out of Egypt. But Matthew kind of reads that as meaning Jesus. But if Moses didn't mean Jesus, and Matthew says Moses meant Jesus, if Matthew's using it as an apologetic, that, yeah, this is Jesus, Then Moses better have meant Jesus. If Moses didn't mean the Messiah, then we've got major problems. Which is why this context, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33, is so important. Because again, Moses, the author, has authority here. So now let's look at the passage. All right, we're just going to look briefly at this. And first, we're going to consider uh, what Balaam is talking about. What days Balaam is talking about? This is in verse fourteen. Notice this. He said, "And this." Now we're back in Numbers twenty-four. This is where we'll be the remainder of the time uh, until the end. Numbers twenty-four fourteen. Now, indeed, I am going to my people. Come, gives a command. I will. Ad- I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the last days. So, when are these days? that Balaam is here talking about, that Jacob in Genesis 49 talks about, that Moses in Deuteronomy 33 talks about. When are these last days? Right. So obviously the author, Moses, has in picture, quote, the last days. Now we don't know yet what these last days are, but whatever these last days are, this is when the king from Judah is supposed to come. So what other clues might we glean from this passage and maybe the others about when these days will come? All right, We have to hold on to that question. Second, what can we learn about this coming king? Now this is where it's going to be a little frightening. Let's go back to verse 7. This king from Jacob will be higher than Agog, and his kingdom will be lifted up. Again, first of all, let me note here that this king is an individual. His kingdom will be lifted up. This king will be higher than Agog, his king. So this is not talking about a people. This is not talking about Israel as a people. We'll see more on that in a moment. No, this king is higher than the title Agag. Most scholars think that this title is a title similar to Pharaoh in Egypt, where all of the kings are called Pharaoh, where all of the kings in the Amalekites are called Agag. That's a possibility. But his kingdom will be lifted high, verse 7 says. Uh, Now, I should just warn you all here momentarily, um, if there is anyone reading the NIV, and I hate to call out a particular version, then you're going to see something different here, and it should alarm you you might see plurals for all these masculine singulars. All the other versions go with masculine and singular, and the Hebrew is masculine and singular. So if you see plurals in Matthew 24, just read a singular. Okay? Verse 8 says, God will bring him out of Egypt. Now note that it does not say God will bring them out of Egypt. It says God will bring him out of Egypt. Notice that this is not a reference to a past event. This is a reference to a future event. Balaam is not talking about Israel, the people, when they came out of Egypt. And any, uh, I would just uh, say that any um, interpretive um, tactic that says, well, Moses really was talking about Egypt here um, is dangerous because of what Matthew quotes. Rather, Moses is saying that when this future king comes, God will bring him out of Egypt. Egypt was being used as a symbol here to what God did in the Exodus, his mighty plagues, his destroying uh, Egypt, his killing of the firstborn of all the Egypt, of all of the, the houses of Egypt. So there is a reference here to Egypt, but only as what God, when God brings this one out of Egypt, there will be a new Exodus. It will be like a new Exodus when this takes place. Now, the next clauses, again, paint vivid images of the coming king. This is where I have to warn um, you who have young children in the room. 24.8 says here, he has the strength like a wild ox. Now, those of you who uh, happen to have teenagers or you know maybe preteens uh, in your house, you know uh, how important uh, videos are as they come streaming through the devices. You know, we used to read newspapers, and now I'm practically sure that any of you my age and younger probably do not even get the newspaper, and nobody 30 and younger gets the newspaper, but rather they have these, st- everything's streamed, right, over the Internet. So it so happens when I read the news, I, I stream also. Uh, while I was streaming the other day, I saw this uh, video, uh, come through my news uh, stream, and uh, it was a video of uh, some some country uh, down in South America of a bull uh, taking on a car. And it was a rather violent video, because the bull walks up to this car, and this is on the highway, mind you, not, not, not out in the field, but he walks up to this car and just rams his horn right up into the uh, the tire of the car, just immediately explodes the tire and lifts the car off the, off the road. And he doesn't stop there. He continues to gore the car, the bottom of the car, and the oil and the water, the coolant, just is exploding, and the car's fender is caving in. The people inside the car, of course, freaking out because they think that the bull is going to overturn the car and start smashing it. Right? That is the imagery here of we... Uh, that we see of this particular king. He has strength like a wild ox. Moreover, he will literally eat, consume, devour the nations who are his enemies. Again, this is not a pretty picture of what this king will do. And he's literally, the word here is to literally eat. It's probably translated consume or devour. But those who are his nations, when this king comes, he is, who his enemies, the king is going to just literally consume them and eat them like we eat food. That's the picture of this king. And it really continues here because he's going to literally crush their bones. And again, just think teeth crushing bones. Think, that, think the teeth of a dog crushing bones. Right or again, if you want another image, we have coffee grinders. Right, the grinders, the the bits are very strong. They're very uh, they're very hard. They crush anything. They crush stones actually when they get in there. Right, but when they crush those beans, they just they literally just crush them. They're they're through. They're in a they're in a different uh, size particle. Here, this king is pictured as literally gnawing the bones, crushing the bones. Moreover, he will pierce. This is one with arrows. Again, I don't want to be too vivid, but the destruction that an arrow causes as it pierces a person or an animal is the image here of what this king will do to his enemies. What is your picture of this king? Each of these images paints a rather disturbing portrayal of the coming king. So again, uh, the next imagery here in Numbers 24 is the lion. I want us to consider this. This is 24.9. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lioness, who will rouse him? Now what do lionesses do when they crouch down? What do lions do as they crouch? They are ready to pounce. They are ready to jump on their prey. They are ready to eat their prey. The picture here of this prophecy, that this, po- this prophecy portrays, is the lion who is getting ready to pounce, who is hunting down his prey, and getting ready to eat. Now, if there's any question that this is a messianic uh, messianic passages, the second part of Numbers 24-9 completely dispels any uh, misconception of what this is supposed to be. Numbers 24-9, the second part of it, blessed is the one blessing you and cursed is the one cursing you, is a direct quotation from Genesis 12-3, which starts the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12-3, where God promises to Abraham, Uh, that uh, his seed many will be blessed by his uh, seed so the author puts it here so that the reader cannot miss that this one pictured as a lion is none other than the seed of abraham now after Balak storms off, because Balaam will not curse Israel, Balaam has another prophetic vision. It's introduced in the same way. And again, like Jason said, this is so that you cannot miss that this is a prophetic vision. All right? And so we'll pick it up in verse 17. Verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Again, we have to see the third masculine singular pronoun here, him, and recognize that this is talking about an individual who would come in the future. This is not Egypt. I'm sorry. This is not Israel who came out of Egypt, because he says not now. It's not yet. We know this is far distance in the future. As Franz Dalisch, the Old Testament scholar, noted, this is not talking about a past event, nor is it talking about anyone in the near period. No, this is talking about a future king who would come. Now we see the next clause in verse 17. A star will come from Jacob. Ever wonder why the wise men in Matthew 2 were looking for a star? No doubt they had read Numbers 24. Furthermore, here in 17, we see again a scepter will rise from Israel. Again, a repetition from Genesis 49 that this king in Numbers 24 is just like the king described in Genesis 49, who would hold a scepter and be king from the tribe of Judah, pictured as a lion, pictured as a king here who wields the ruler's staff. Now, what will this king do with his scepter? Again, he will crush his enemies. Listen to the description of this one who holds the scepter following... Literally, in uh, continuing in verse 17, he will crush through the forehead of Moab. <clears throat> Moab, again, was kind of Israel's perennial enemy. And I don't want to be, again, too vivid here, but I also don't want to allow you to, um, to miss the picture of the author. If you can imagine someone crushing the forehead... That's the picture here. That's the picture here. It is not a pretty picture. It is not a pretty picture. I remember a few years ago, um, I had an acquaintance who was a firefighter, and he was telling me about a motorcycle accident that had taken place. Um, The motorcycle rider uh, wrecked and was caught underneath the vehicle. And I'll stop right there, but you can imagine the scene that he described and said one that he'll never forget. This is similar to the picture of this coming ruler. Now, again, it's poetic imagery, but poetic imagery doesn't mean not true, right? It just means it's representing something that will happen. For anyone who doubts the reality of a hell, the picture here is every bit as horrible as a hell that this coming king will accomplish on his enemies. He will crush his enemies. He will tear down all the sons of Sheph. Edom, another perennial enemy, will be a possession. He will possess the nation of Edom. Seir also, his enemies, will be a possession. Israel will do valiantly. Out of Jacob, one will rule. He will destroy the survivors from the city. Can you believe the destruction? Can you believe the destruction of this king? Can you believe his strength? Can you believe his authority? To repeat Genesis 49, he says, Judah, you are the one whom your brothers will praise. Look at this imagery. Your hand will be on the neck. Of your enemies. Again, a position of strength, authority, death, and destruction. Finally, the obedience of the nations will be his. Ever wonder what will happen in the last days besides the king coming? The obedience of the nations will be his. When you see a king coming and nations obeying, you know we're in the last days. I would submit to you that the nations have begun to obey. We're not finished with the last days, mind you, because there are still some who need to bow the knee. But the king has come once, he will come again, and it will not be a pretty picture. Application. Fourth and final point. What should we do about this? How should we respond to, be honest, this disturbing portrayal of the king? The first thing we need to do is we need to trust. Trust that what God's word says will come to pass. Right? Matthew's quote in Matthew 2.13 regarding the star and where the king would come from, we need to trust that Matthew had it right. He read Numbers. He read Moses right. He says in Matthew 2:13, When they had gone, this is, uh, of course, the Christmas story, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, quote, Out of Egypt. I called my son. God's word came true in the person of Christ. So we should have confidence in God's word that exactly as he promised, it will come to pass. Now, as much as that should give us confidence, as much as that should give us confidence, it should also put the fear of God in us. Well, the second point is we should fear. We should fear. Now, I know Jesus is humble. I know Jesus loves you. I know Jesus sacrificed for us. But remember this Jesus will come again and he will judge. And the imagery here in Numbers 24, amidst the other passages, describe. A rather frightful scene. He will crush the forehead of those who are his enemies. He will eat those who are his enemies. Just as much as the passage came to, tr- came to pass in that the Messiah came, so the judgment will come to pass. Now, we can say, who are his enemies? Well, those in whom his spirit does not reside. Well, how do we know them? Well, we know them by their fruit. Apples come from apple trees. Oranges come from oranges trees. The Spirit of God begets people in whom the Spirit of God is. Spirit of God does not beget liars. Are you a liar? Repent. Confess. That's how we know that you are a son or daughter of God. The Spirit of God does not not beget people who covet and who envy all the things of this world and who are not satisfied in the Holy One of Israel. The Spirit of God does not beget those who have rage, those who constantly complain, those who prey on women, those who slander others. Does that describe you? Repent. Confess and demonstrate that the Spirit of God indeed lives in you. You should fear this king. We could consider the quote from the Chronicles of Narnia, off quoted when Lucy asked the beaver about Aslan and if he was safe. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Third little point of application. The first one was trust. The second one was fear. The third one is a door. This mighty ruler who will come again like a lion devouring his enemy, crushing the forehead of those who oppose him, tearing down his enemy, first came as a baby, helpless, humble, so that he might save the likes of you and the likes of me. For that, he deserves our adoration and our loyalty. Are you having trouble forsaking sin? Consider that Almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth, took on flesh so that you and I might dwell with him forever. Adore him. Forsake sin. Finally, worship. Let's bow down before this king, because he is worthy. I close with a quote from Revelation five from John, who obviously had been reading these passages as well. He says, "I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the scroll to loose its seals?" No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to, look or to look at it. So I wept much, because nobody was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Let's pray. Father, we do bow down before you for your awesome plan, program of salvation, saving us, Lord, from the destruction that you will bring upon your enemies. Lord, we worship you. We revere you. We fear you. We beg you. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for your mercy on us. Help us to live in ways that reflect the majesty of who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.